How far would you be willing to go to stand up for your principles? How much would you be willing to risk for something you believe? And what is the greatest cost that you would be willing to pay to defend a moral cause? And would it make any difference if you knew that you were standing alone, having the whole world against you and no one behind you? Well, today on Legalese, we are going to be discussing an event in which a man was faced with just such a choice and demonstrated the kind of courage that we would all, no doubt, like to believe that we ourselves could muster when faced with such a challenge. Now, these events culminated in a 1971 Supreme Court case known as Clay v. United States, though this is much more commonly known as the Trial of Muhammad Ali. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to my channel, let me extend a special welcome to you. I'll let you know that this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, this show comes in a number of different formats. You can find uh, the video version on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. Uh, I do an audio-only version available on Anchor and Spotify. And if you head over to Substack, you will find uh, not only this show, but also uh, a bunch of show notes pages that give uh, extra information and articles and documents and stuff that go along uh, with the latest episode of the show, as well as my own articles and essays that I publish there from time to time as well. And you may just maybe be interested in going and checking out my new uh, recently released book, constitutional sleight of hand. Uh, this is a book that discusses the history and evolution of the implied powers doctrine in American constitutional law, as well as uh, some solutions on how we could begin to roll back the implied power doctrine in its meaning and scope to return it to something more like the original understanding that it had amongst the Constitution's framers and ratifiers. Now, you can find links to go do all of those awesome things uh, down in this video's description. So today we are going to be uh, discussing what is, uh, for me, absolutely one of the most interesting and inspiring cases in all of constitutional law. And I want to thank a longtime viewer and friend of the channel, Jay, who suggested this topic. Uh, this is a case that speaks to so uh, many subjects that I know are certainly important to me uh, and that are very much apropos to the major themes that I tend to focus on here on my channel, which I guess in turn means these are likely topics of important to you if you have followed me for any length of time. Now, this case is interesting because it really demonstrates so much of the very best and the very worst of America, of our values, and certainly of our laws and our courts. So this is going to be a two-part series. We will be doing part one today. We will begin with a very brief look at what it means to be a conscientious objector according to text, history, and tradition. We will then be doing a general overview of the events surrounding Muhammad Ali's objections to being drafted to fight in the Vietnam War 
and his struggle to be granted a conscientious objector exemption that ended up consuming his life for a number of years as he fought both a criminal trial uh, for being charged with evading the draft and a civil trial against various boxing commissions that had stripped him of his boxing license and therefore his ability to make a living. Now, we will also, after that, uh, be discussing some lessons that come uh, to me from an understanding of the events of this case that I believe will prove useful to us here in the present. And really, in fact, I, I believe that this case may be more relevant today than at any time in the past, and we'll get to why a little bit later. And then for part two tomorrow, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the legal history of the laws he was accused of violating, uh, his initial trials, his handful of appeals uh, that followed uh, to seek to overturn his criminal conviction, all of which culminated in the most well-known point of this story, which is his 1971 Supreme Court case where they chose to review his conviction in Clay v. United States. And we will be concluding a uh, full legal analysis of the relationship of that case to the Constitution, as well as its place in and effect on the larger subject of constitutional law. But to start with, I think we need to spend some time talking about conscientious objection. So conscientious objection to military service refers to a position taken by an individual who opposes participation in a war on the basis of their religious, moral, or ethical beliefs. Now, such objection can take many forms, such as refusing to serve in combat, refusing to register for the draft, refusing to pay taxes tied to war allocations, or to generally make any type of contribution to a war effort. Now, conscientious objection has a long history, and it is certainly international in scope, uh, but the primary impetus has historically been a religious one. So let's take a quick walk through the history of conscientious objection in the United States. Now, before the American Revolution, most conscientious objectors were members of so-called peace churches. Among them were the Mennonites, the Quakers, and the Church of the Brethren. Now, these were churches which practiced pacifism. However, other groups, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, although not strictly pacifist, also refused to participate on religious grounds. And governing authorities have dealt with conscientious objectors very desperately, with some receiving objections, exemptions, and others being fined or imprisoned. And during the Civil War, Congress enacted the nation's first federal military conscription legislation in which it provided exemptions for anyone who paid a substantial fee. Uh, the fee was uh, $300, which I don't know how much that is in today's money, but it's a fucking lot. It's a lot. Uh, so anyways, um, after 
Riots and debates about the discriminatory nature of this fee exemption happened. Congress would go on to pass legislation that also allowed alternative service for members of so-called peace churches. And this alternative service option for religious objectors continued during World War I. But those conscientious objectors who based their beliefs on political, moral, or personal grounds were conscripted and punished if they refused to serve. And then in World War II, the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940 codified the procedure uh, and provided for a mandatory alternative service for those who refused to take part in combat uh, by reason of religious training and belief. And those who failed to meet these qualifications but refused nonetheless to participate would be uh, tried and imprisoned. Now, the number of conscientious objectors numbered in the thousands during the Vietnam War, with many objectors and others viewing this conflict as an unjust war. Now, the Supreme Court was called on to interpret the exemption for conscientious objection and its relation to the First Amendment in regard to the Vietnam War, particularly in two cases, Welsh v. United States in 1970 and Gillette v. United States in 1971. Now, these turned on a, uh, a law known as the Military Selective Service Act of 1967. And particularly, they turned on Section 6J of that law, which provides, Nothing contained in this title shall be construed to require any person to be subject to combatant training and service in the armed forces of the United States who, by reason of religious training and belief, is conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. Now, in Welsh, the court somewhat uh, creatively, let's say, interpreted and thereby broadened the phrase by reason of religious training and belief when, according to the court, what is necessary for a registrant's conscientious objection to all war to be religious within the meaning of Section 6J is that this opposition to war stem from the registrant's moral, ethical, or religious beliefs about what is right and wrong, and that these beliefs be held with the strength of a traditional religious conviction. Now, the court in Gillette declined to provide any additional relief to conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. And Gillette had objected to participation in the Vietnam War, and he had in fact refused induction, but he was not necessarily opposed to all wars. Gillette's view of his duty was to abstain from any involvement in an unjust war. Now, he alleged that if Section 6J were construed to cover only objectors to all war, as the Supreme Court was reading it in his case, it would violate the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Now, the court would reject that view, and in the process, 
made it clear that objection to a particular war, as opposed to war in any form, was to them an impermissible basis for asserting a claim of conscientious objection. So, with all this in mind, we now come to Clay v. United States in 1971. And in this case, six Supreme Court justices issued a pure uh, per curiam rejection of a Kentucky Appeal Board's denial of conscientious objector status to Cassius Clay, the world championship boxer who by that time had changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Now, there were actually uh, eight justices on the court, and he got a unanimous 8-0 vote. But six of them were per curiam, uh, and then there were uh, two additional concurring opinions, one from, I believe, Potter Stewart, and the other one from John Marshall Harlan. Now, this ruling reiterated and clarified standards for conscientious objectors to be used in similar cases. Now, they cited Gillette v. United States, uh, as well as a couple of older cases, United States v. Seeger, a case from 1965, and a case known as Whitmer v. United States from 1955. And here, the majority reiterated that individuals seeking to be classified as conscientious objectors need to pass a three-part legal test. The legal test for conscientious objectors means you must first show that your opposition applies to war in any form. Second, that this opposition stems, stems from religious training and belief. And third, demonstrate that this religious belief is sincere. Now, although a Justice Department hearing officer relying on an FBI investigation had actually initially found in Clay's favor, the Justice Department nonetheless had recommended that Clay's plea be denied for failure to satisfy these three basic criteria for conscientious objectors. And with this, the appeal board in turn denied Clay's request for conscientious objector status without offering any statement of its reason. Now, the government subsequently conceded that Clay met the second and third criteria. And ultimately, because the board had offered no reasons for its decision, uh, it was said that there was no way for the court, uh, in, the United, in the Supreme Court that is, to determine whether its rejection had been based on one of the criteria that the government now recognized him as having met. And it was on this basis that the court thereby overturned the decision of that Kentucky Appeal Board. Now, on one level, it's very easy to see this case as a great victory in First Amendment jurisprudence regarding both the Free Speech Clause and the Establishment Clause. And on another level, I think it actually shows just how arbitrary and capricious the law can be, and it demonstrates a point that I have been making for uh, some time uh, that I believe 
continues to go largely unrecognized by most people that we need to begin seeing sedition as a virtue. And in fact, sedition is a distinctly American virtue. But in this case, it's so much more than that. Because as I began putting together this episode, I quickly realized that it had so much to say about so many important events of today that right now, I think this case may be more relevant than it has ever been at any time, at least since 1971. I mean, if we think about it, uh, this is a story that is about a war on the other side of the world, a war that we had no business getting entangled in against a country that posed no threat to us that was really nothing more than an American proxy war against Russia because we had an irrational fear that the Russians posed some immediate, literal, existential threat to our nation's continued existence and that our government refused to stop fighting because they insisted that it was a war we were winning, at least publicly they insisted that, despite the fact that those in power were clearly and openly saying to themselves in private that they were entirely unaware, they were entirely aware that this war was unwinnable. And this really only served to heighten tensions between our nation and Russia at a time when any escalation could have made nuclear war a highly probable outcome. And it's remarkable how much that description of the Vietnam War in the 1960s mirrors so much of the very same rhetoric we are hearing today from the current generation of war hawks and neocons. But the similarities extend not only to the war itself, but to the zeitgeist, both then and now, that is seen towards any voice of dissent, anyone raising an appropriate but uncomfortable question about the wisdom or the morality of our actions. And whether it's Vietnam in the mid-60s or Ukraine today, we are at a point where anyone offering criticism or dissent are immediately slandered as disloyal Americans, as enemies beholden to Russia, as traitors, as cowards, and even worse. Really, the only discernible difference that I see between then and now is the severity of the reaction. Now, I gotta say, it was um, absolutely shameful uh, recently to see the mainstream reaction to the very recent rage against the war machine rally. Now, this was an assembly of some of the most principled individuals from across the political spectrum, several of whom I consider myself fortunate to count as friends and acquaintances who spoke out against acts of aggression and in favor of peace and in turn were labeled with all the usual slanders you would expect. But as shameful as it was to see these people treated with such contempt, the fact is, in some senses, their backlash was nothing compared to what was experienced by Ali when he was denouncing acts of aggression against people who had done neither him 
or our nation any harm. And this cost him not only his recently won heavyweight title, his career, his ability to make a living, and his reputation, it could have easily taken five years of his life had the conviction been upheld. And that is perhaps the most interesting thing that I personally have taken away uh, from the research that I did to make this episode was that I, I came to a newfound understanding and appreciation of precisely what Ali was objecting to. Because while the context of his objection was undeniably rooted in his religious values that he held as a minister in the nation of Islam, the content of his dissent was undeniably rooted in the libertarian principle of non-aggression, which was something I found incredibly inspiring. Because it's very easy to espouse a belief in non-aggression in a time of peace. And it's even relatively easy still, when the worst you can expect is some contemptuous name-calling from people who have proved time and again that the only reason they lash out that way is because they are incapable of making a substantive argument in favor of murder and aggression, which is to be expected. To this day, people frequently mislabel Muhammad Ali as a so-called draft dodger, though Ali never dodged anything. He opposed it accepting the legal consequences without any attempt to evade them. He didn't flee to Canada. He didn't enroll in college to obtain a deferment. From the moment he learned of his induction, he stood firm in the proud tradition of civil disobedience and said, just take me to jail. But perhaps... You may be asking yourself what I mean when I talk about this libertarian non-aggression principle. Now, this is simply the understanding that it is wrong to initiate violence, to use force against those who have not used force against you. Now, as Ali put it himself in his own words, why should me and other so-called Negroes go 10,000 miles away from home here in America, to drop bombs and bullets on other innocent brown people who's never bothered us, and I will say directly, no, I will not go. And history has unequivocally vindicated his principled stand against a war, nearly everyone now considers a mistake. But I want to point out the fact that it wasn't just the lack of a congressional declaration of war that made Vietnam an immoral or unlawful war. Just as now, with our sanctions against Russia, our military support of Ukraine in their war against a country that poses no existential threat to the United States, and by our government's acts of terrorism being committed against 
not only Russia, but our supposed ally Germany, when our government decided to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. And bearing in mind that each one of those things I just mentioned, from sanctions to military support to acts of terrorism, are all considered acts of war. Now, such acts would not be made moral by a declaration of war against Russia now, nor would it have been moral to get a declaration of war at some point about the Vietnam War, because the declaration of war power granted to Congress is not the power to start a war. It is only the power to declare one that already exists because of an act of aggression committed by another nation against ourselves in line with those principles of non-aggression. This is not just the morally right choice. By going on the understanding of the framers and the ratifiers who gave our Constitution legal force, this is how Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 was originally understood. This is the Declaration of War Clause. Now, despite this vindication of Ali's beliefs and his overturned conviction in 1971, he is still occasionally uh, reviled by a, a portion of the American public uh, he has continued to be for many years after. But throughout it all, he maintained his stance, reiterating the non-aggression principle over and over as he toured America speaking out against the war. Now, I think the way the history of this war is often portrayed today can give people a false impression that the Vietnam War was unpopular from day one, as though the anti-war counterculture of the hippies and the new left sprang up overnight as an instant reaction to the war. But this was not the case. A lot of very smart people defended the Vietnam War at the time. Some of the most hawkish wonks still do. But let's try to imagine the lives and the fortunes that could have been saved if these people just took a minute to listen to this young boxer who wisely articulated the eternal law of nature in opposing an immoral and unnecessary war. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Uh, again, we will be back with part two tomorrow, where we will be going over a uh, legal history of Muhammad Ali's cases. Uh, so be sure to tune in for that uh, and do all the normal things that help trigger Al Gore's rhythm, if you will. If you liked the video, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, you know, Leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about this. Uh, and if, if you have any uh, other suggestions of cases or uh, events that you would like me to talk about, I always love doing that just the way I did today. Uh, so uh, let me know. Just leave me a comment down below and let me know if there was a topic you would like to see uh, a future episode on. 
Uh, and, and yeah, subscribe to the channel just to make sure you always know when my newest content comes out. And so I guess until next time, I'm just signing off here. This has been me, Bob, for Legalese, talking about Muhammad Ali, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Fucker